the same again. Do you know this song? I wanted to sing that after I heard Kelly's jokes. So Kelly, if you're listening, thank you. I'll never be the same again. Uh, we are going to talk about 1 Samuel 28 this morning, which is the tragedy of Saul. So how do we get into this text? There are at least 3,000 years between these events and us. There's multiple cultures in between us. There's linguistic challenges and distance between us. This is, these are stories that were carried down through the generations, first from father to child, just orally, and then priests and others started to gather them together and compile them and put them in an orderly fashion. There's a lot of distance between us and these events. And so I want to approach the story with some caution and some respect. And then I want to approach the story from where we are right now. So this is where I want to start. Um, during the school year, when we have two services here on Sunday mornings, I come much earlier to get ready for the first service. And since we've been here in uh, April, since we started in April and all my family was here together with us, my son, my oldest son, has wanted to come with me most Sunday mornings, which was kind of a surprise to me because it's early. And we ride our bikes to the train, to the C train uh, over in West Hillhurst, and then we take the trains across the city to here. Now, we have seen some things in just a few months on the C train. And my son has been there with me to witness some of that. One morning, there was a lady. Uh, so this is before 8 in the morning. There's a lady who is almost passing out drunk. And she's finishing a beer on the C train. And she's kind of, uh, she's asking for money. She's lamenting. She's angry at some moments. She's kind of singing the song of her people. She's splashing beer all over the place, and, and at the end, she's mad. She crumples up the can, throws it down, and gets off. And my son sees all this. Another morning, there's a couple finishing together a bottle of Listerine. Another morning, we look out the train, and here's a, a, a tall fellow, and he reaches down in the trash can, and he pulls out... Uh, a pop, can, not a can, not a bottle, uh, a cup, right? Like a disposable cup that you'd get from McDonald's or something. And I'm watching to see what he's doing, and he looks at it, checks it out, and then he takes a sip, and he finishes off whatever's in there. And my son sees all this. So here's my question. As a father... Me taking my son on the train and allowing him to see this stuff and talking through what's going on there, is that an act of grace? Because what I'm showing him is people's lives unraveled and tragedy. But I want him to see that and I want him to think about how they got there and where they might go from there. And the first question is not that simple. It's not as simple as, well, they made a bad choice and now they're suffering for it. That's part of it. They probably made more than one bad choice. 
But if you were to get into the lives of those people and listen to their stories, there are things that precede their bad choices. Right? There are things that happen in our communities, decisions that our governments made, decisions that our ancestors made, injustices that happened, abuses that happened between parents and children that cultivate the environment when this stuff happens. But they still make bad choices, right? It's not, what my point is, it's not easy. It's not simple to just lay blame and say, well, they made a bad choice and they're suffering for it. Or someone else was unjust and therefore they're excused from their choices. It's not that easy. Sin and the tragedy that comes about from sin is complicated. That's where I want to start. Now we go back 3,000 years or more to Saul. And we see the same thing. We see in this story a man whose life is unraveling and it is a tragedy in every sense of the term. Uh, Shakespeare could have rewritten this and it would have fit right in with King Lear. Everything is a mess. Saul has been rejected by God because Saul has repeatedly rejected God. Saul has been rejected by the prophet Samuel and Samuel is now dead. David is on the run and David, who will become the righteous king, is where? He's being appointed the bodyguard of the Lord of the Philistines. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is a mess. The one who's, who is now the anointed, the one who's waiting to, become, to be inaugurated as the king, who is accepted by God, is in the camp of the Philistines. The one who's been rejected by God, but who's still the kind of the high king of Israel. Let's look at his story. Let me read this. This is Samuel chapter 28, and I'm going to start at verse 3. Samuel was dead. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town at Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Don't miss that point. Saul had done something right. He got rid of the practices of the the necromancers, right? The dark arts, the people who can speak to the... he, He expelled them. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Don't miss that. Saul is filled with fear. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. And the ephod, by the way, is gone away. It's also in the, in the camp of the Philistines, basically with David, because the, the priest who had the ephod, which was their primary way of inquiring of God, had taken off, had defected, and is loyal to David and is on the run as well. So all the normal ways that they have of hearing from God, God's not speaking through them. Saul then turns to his attendants and says, find me a woman who is a medium. That's a a necromancer, basically, someone who speaks with the dead. This is, by the way, on page 212 in in the pew books, pew Bibles. There is, uh, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. And there is one in Endor, they said. 
So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life and bring about my death? And I want to pause here for a second so that you catch the the irony of what's happening. The king, who is supposed to be the bearer of God's righteousness, is doing the worst possible thing. And the witch, who is the worst possible character, is trying to do the right thing. See what's going on? This is King Lear. If you have read King Lear in high school or recently, this is exactly what's going on. The fool is righteous. The king is in folly. It's flipped upside down, and it would cause all kinds of consternation in the heart of the readers because everything, all the order from the top down is now reversed, and everything's mess, a mess. Okay? Saul swore to her by the Lord. Okay? Another... So here's Saul taking the name of Yahweh to invoke a witch's power to raise the dead. Everything is wrong. Saul swears to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Like he had the right to say that. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Good thinking, Saul. Samuel says, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? That really is the good thinking, right? The logic there is clear. Saul If God has rejected you by every other means, this is not going to help, coming and having me come up from the dead. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. And do you remember what Saul's sin was? God told him to... There's a word in Hebrew, it's cherem. It means to dedicate completely to the Lord. And in the case of holy war, it means to completely annihilate the enemy. Don't take any of the spoils. Don't leave anyone alive. You're, you're meeting out God's judgment on these folks and do it completely. You're not to, to spare them for your own, uh, your own thinking. And in Saul's case, it's really a twisted way of being greedy. He wants some of the spoils. Saul failed to do it. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. So now God is going to do to Israel what Israel was supposed to do to the Amalekites. Immediately Saul 
Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. And when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your maidservant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may eat and have strength to go on your way. And again, don't miss the irony. Here is, she's calling herself a maidservant. On on the totem pole of righteousness, she would be the very bottom. And of authority in the kingdom, she would be on the very bottom. She is... Uh, She's on the lamb. She's on the run. She should be in hiding. She was in hiding. Saul found her out, right? She's now giving Saul a command. It's a polite way of doing it, but she's telling the king what to do. And she's offering hospitality. She's kind of doing the right thing. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And that same night, they got up and left. And the end is just as messy as the beginning, because Saul should never have been eating anything from her household according to ritual law. Everything from her house would have been unclean. At the same time, there's this hint of righteousness, because she goes and slaughters the fattened calf, to, to serve him. So there's hospitality. So, so everything, again, it's this backwards thing happening. The one who is the epitome of godlessness in the story, the witch, is doing the right thing. Saul, who should be the emissary of God and authority, is doing everything wrong. And this is what the text wants us to see. Because the end of the story for Saul and his dynasty is not hap- happy. If you were to turn over a, a couple pages... To, verse 30, to chapter 31. The rest of the story is that when the Philistines come and Israel runs away, the Philistines chase them. They catch Saul and his sons and they kill his kids. They kill his boys. Jonathan, remember, David's friend, is killed here. Abinadab, Malkishua, the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and then when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. So he's been hit by an arrow. And Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and falls on it, commits suicide. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. And then basically, the Philistines come, the Israelites all flee their villages before the Philistines. The Philistines come in and occupy the land. And that's beginning to set up the low point in the story for David's return. So that's what's coming. Kelly gets to talk about that stuff. Again, thanks, Kelly. You get to talk about the good stuff. But this is tragedy through and through. I, I know I keep referring back to Shakespeare, but it is just like a classic, uh, well, Greek tragedy before Shakespeare. But Shakespeare's tragedies were at the end, you know, you have everybody falling on the floor who's, who's accidentally been cut with a poisonous sword or drunk the poison or stabbed. And they, they say, I die, I die. And they all die. And at the end, the stage is covered with dead people. That's how the stage ends in First Samuel. It's covered with dead people. And the book ends there. 
I think if there's grace in the text, it's that God allows us to see this, to learn from it. And then there is a kind of long and messy grace that's woven through the suffering of the people of Israel that was brought about by Saul's actions, but not just Saul's actions, right? Why was Saul king? Because Samuel's sons weren't acceptable leaders and the people were so dissatisfied that they called out for a king. That was part of it. Why was Samuel there? Do you remember going all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer? Hannah, she's the wife, she's the second wife of Elkanah. He has another wife uh, who has children, but Hannah's not able to have children. Every year they go to, before the Lord and Hannah is always quietly praying, please give me a child. And Samuel is born, and she dedicates him to Eli. But why does Eli need a successor? Because Eli's sons, do you remember Phinehas and the other one, are so evil that they're totally unacceptable. They're taking the sacrifices to the Lord before they've properly been offered to God and eating them when, they're still, when they still have the fat on them, basically, is what's going on these offerings that were supposed to have the fat roasted off, the good things offered up to God first. Eli's sons are stealing that, eating that, and then offering the leftovers to God. So you've got this long history of kind of systemic unrighteousness and and disobedience and rejection of God in the leadership of Israel now for a few generations that leads up to Saul. Eli's sons are a mess. Eli's having trouble as a parent, right? Samuel's sons are a mess. The people fail as a whole and call out for a king because they want they want someone strong that can defend them against the Amalekites and the Philistines so the people fail and then you have Saul and God puts his spirit with Saul but even so Saul repeatedly fails and rejects God it's a mess he doesn't just fail on a small scale either he does bad things he kills a lot of people Remember just, just prior to this, when David is on the run and David goes to Nob and there, there's a priest, there's some priests there and the only food available to David is the bread of the covenant and David eats it or the priests give it to David and his men to eat. Even Jesus refers to this story later, right? Pretty famous story. So this priest at Nob offers hospitality and kind of rescues David. Do you remember what Saul did to that priest? He called him and the other priests in, kind of runs a kangaroo court, and then has them killed. First, he tells his men to kill him, and his men are too righteous and scared. Like, no, we're not going to kill him. So who does he have kill him? He has an Edomite, a foreigner, an outsider from outside of the covenant of Israel, kill the priest of God in his house. Saul's making some awful mistakes. These aren't small things, but it's not just Saul's choices that that lead to this tragedy. And that's what I want you to see. It's this long history of corruption in the leadership and failings and then the people rejecting God over and over. And all the time, God is calling them back, calling them back, calling them back, but they keep rejecting him. And so finally, God tears... What do they lose? A kingdom. Tears the kingdom out of their hands, and then he gives it to David. 
David who becomes the one on, to whom God promises, I will give you a throne that will be for the ages or that will be eternal. And I will put a righteous one on that throne. Who's that? Jesus. Much, much later in the story. It takes, it takes a thousand years to get there. And through that we have all of this messy grace, right? Kings who reject God, kings who come back to God. We have the prophets constantly calling the people and the kings back to the covenant. But it culminates in Christ. But this starts right here in terms of a kingdom and a kingship. The groundwork is laid right here. That's what I want you to see this morning. So here's the last thing. Let's come back to us. Come back to me. I can look at Saul and go, what an idiot. You know, how God repeatedly through Samuel calls him back. He's like, Saul, smarten up. But Saul doesn't. He's, he's obstinate in his rejection, in his rebellion. And if I do that, if I say, Saul, you idiot, then I kind of miss the point. And I put too much distance between Saul and myself. Let me put it a different way. Look at Saul's pattern, even in this text. Saul does something righteous. He tries. He sends out all of the... He, he expels all of the mediums and the spiritists, right? He's doing something good. In the next moment, what's happening? He's afraid. And he doesn't hear from God right away. And in his fear, what does he do? He tries to solve his own problem. Let me give you another term. He self-medicates. Right? He goes to a different source to try to get what he can only really get from God. And now all of a sudden, the story's not so distant. Because I've done those things. I've done a good thing. And in the next moment, I've been afraid. And in my fear and in my doubt, I've turned to things to try to satisfy needs that only God can satisfy. And all of a sudden I realize Saul is us. So where do we turn now? I think we learn from Saul. We learn from all the dead people on the stage at the end of the story. That continual rejection and ultimately Saul's own rejection of his of the power of repentance is the lesson here. And then you look to David, and this is what Kelly gets to preach on. David's not much better in some ways. He makes some similar mistakes. But the difference is, when David Samuel, who is Nathan, comes to David, David turns and repents and turns back to God. This is like the story of Judas and Peter, right? They're really not that different. Saul and Judas end in suicide, they succumb to despair and they give up. David and Peter embrace repentance and they turn around. I think that's the lesson for us. That's a heavy lesson for a day when we have a baptism. But we do today, and I'm going to turn the time over now to Steve, but I do want to make one tie in here. This story was not about one person. It's not about Saul. It's about the community of faith. And when we have, like we do today, 
someone enter into the community of faith, we need to remember that, that we're celebrating Faze's decision this morning. But what happens from here on, probably the messy grace that takes place in all of our lives is about our community together. So that's what I want to say as we turn the time over to Steve. Good morning. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted to uh, introduce everyone this morning to my friend Faza. Um, as Jonathan mentioned, we're going to have a baptism this morning. Uh, Jonathan has decided to uh, give his life to the Lord. Or Faza, pardon me. <laughs> I think Jonathan's made that decision as well. <laughs> but yeah, Faza has, has uh, made that decision this morning. Um, by way of background, uh, Faza and I uh, got to know each other uh, through our Friends Speak program. Um, Faza is originally from Ethiopia, and he's been living in Canada for about four years or, so, or now or so, and in Calgary for about two years. So he was looking for help uh, to improve his English um, skills, and so we started reading um, material in the book of, uh, of Luke and uh, the first part of Acts. And uh, in terms of Faza's background, he, he was familiar um, with Old Testament teachings just from some of his background um, in Ethiopia, but he'd never really uh, heard about uh, Jesus before. And so as we, as we read through the book of Luke, uh, and then into Acts in the, in the uh, beginnings of the early church. Um, Faza uh, came to know who Christ really was, or is.